Good morning, Bethel. It is a pleasure to preach here again. Facebook was launched by Mark Zuckerberg from his Harvard dorm room on February 4th, 2004, about 10 years ago. Today, Facebook claims almost 1.4 billion monthly active users. That would be one out of every five people on the planet. According to a Pew Research Center article, in America, 57% of all adults and 73% of all those ages 12 through 17 use Facebook. And adult Facebook use is intensifying. 64% of adult Facebook users visit the site on a daily basis up from 51% of daily users in 2010. This is extraordinary, is it not? Eleven years ago, Facebook did not exist, and now more than half of all adult Americans are Facebook users, and two-thirds of them are checking it on a daily basis. I have never used Facebook, not once, and perhaps some of you haven't either. But I think we all know that after registering to use the site, a person creates a personal profile, and they can list where they went to school, and what music they like, and what movies they like, and what books they like, and what interests they have. Then they send and receive invitations to become friends with other users, And with their friends, they can exchange messages and share photos and post status updates. Then there's something called a wall, which I don't completely understand. And other people can write on your wall, and you can write on their wall, and you can click the like button and scan your notifications, and on and on and on and on. But it's not just Facebook. Then there's Twitter with its 271 million users sending 500 million tweets per day. Instagram, with its more than 200 million users. And Pinterest, with its 70 million users. Not to mention LinkedIn, Google+, Tumblr, MySpace, and many more. And what is the never-ending droning message of these sites? Share yourself, share yourself, share yourself, and learn about others, learn about others. Learn lots of little interesting things about others. It is thus safe to say that we live in an age, really in a period that started maybe only 10 years ago, in which there is unprecedented technological opportunity for relationships. And one could reasonably assume that with the flowering of social media, the average person today would be enjoying a vast multitude of relationships at a depth that we could not imagine 10 years ago. One could assume that with the Facebook likes and tweets and Instagrams and Pinterest pins and impressive professional networks, we would be more connected 
to other people than we ever have been before. But I ask you this morning, is that true? Is our American society today enjoying more relationships at a more intimate level than in the past? I would argue, and I wonder if you would agree with me, that social media in the main has not increased the quality of our relationships. In fact, I would argue that we are in the midst of a widespread relationship famine in our day. And whether this is true of the society at large, I know that it is true to some degree of this church. I know that there are people in this church, people in this room, who may have been here for years and may even be heavily involved, who are starving for real, substantial relationships and friendships. I would guess that most of us in this room are not satisfied with an overabundance of rich personal relationships, but are more likely hungry for more meaningful and significant relationships. Tyler and I have decided to address this topic from the Word of God in a three-part series we are calling Relational Christianity. We believe that the Christian religion is all about relationships. In fact, the central message of our three sermons is this. Relationships are the very fabric of the Christian faith. Relationships are the very fabric of the Christian faith. Without relationships, there is no Christian faith. So if we want to be Christians and grow as Christians, we must understand, seek, and cultivate real and substantive relationships. And the loving relationships that form the Christian life are the only answer to our culture's relationship famine. So, where do we start this morning? How do we begin to address this relationship famine? Brothers and sisters, we need to start with God. I would suggest to you that every social issue or cultural challenge facing the church today should prompt us first to ask the question, who is God? God is the one who defines reality who shapes reality, who created reality. So if we are not considering God when we discuss an issue, our discussion will inevitably be shallow and warped. God himself is our first and highest value at this church. And if we want, to be, if we want him to be at the center of everything that we do, then we must think through problems by starting with him. Now, with the topic of relationships, being God-centered in our thinking doesn't simply mean starting with our relationship with God. 
In this case, we must press even further into God's relationship with God. I mean, relationships within the Trinity. And it will be my contention this morning that relationships are at the very essence of God. Or to put it another way, relationships are part of the very nature of the triune God himself. And, as we will see later on, something almost too wonderful for comprehension. God invites us into the intra-Trinitarian relationship. We are treading on ineffable heights here. We could never presume to speak in this way if God had not revealed it to us. And while so much of the relationships within the Godhead are probably beyond human description, this morning we are going to examine a few verses at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 17. So after this lengthy introduction, let me ask you to open your Bibles to John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26 can be found in the Pew Bible on page 903. We will concentrate this morning on verses 24 through 26, and next week we will concentrate on verses 20 through 23. But let me read the entire passage, John 17, 20 through 26. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, as I said, we are treading on the heights this morning. What a privilege we have to glimpse into your relationship with the Son before the world began. How stunning and how Sublime are the realities that are here described. Please, O oh God, keep me from error 
as I grope for words in explaining this passage. And please, O God, let us feel the profundity of these things. Would your grace rest heavily upon us this morning? For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point of this sermon, again, is relationships are at the very essence of God. So if that is so, if relationships are woven into the being of God, how could they not be utterly foundational to the Christian life? The Gospel of John, probably more than any other biblical book, gives us a glimpse into the Trinitarian relationships, and there is much that I could say. But in examining John 17, 24 through 26, we'll focus mainly on the Father's relationship with the Son. These three verses characterize their relationship in at least three ways. It is a relationship of knowledge, it is a relationship of love, and it is a relationship of glory. First, knowledge. Please look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. I know you. The Son knows the Father. This is a critical claim in the Gospel of John. All throughout the Gospel, we hear Jesus declaring that he has seen and heard the Father, that He has come from the Father, and the Father has sent Him, that Jesus knows the Father, and therefore does not speak from His own authority and with His own words, but says only what the Father has told Him to say. For example, in John seven twenty-eight, Jesus questions whether His opponents really know Him and know from where He comes. He then proclaims, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The knowledge Jesus has of the Father comes from being with him in the beginning and extends not only to his teaching, but also to his actions. As Jesus pronounces in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So Jesus has an intimate knowledge of the will and intentions of God the Father. They work together in unbroken concert. Finally, in responding to his opponents once more, Jesus answers in John 8, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. The Son 
knows the Father. The Father knows the Son. Their relationship is characterized by a seamless and complete knowledge of each other and acquaintance with each other. Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Betsy and I have been married now for more than 10 years, and I would like to think that we know each other very well. Yet sometimes in a conversation in which I am being especially thick-headed, Betsy will say to me, Alex, you don't understand me. Or husbands, how many times have you heard from your wives, dear, you just don't get it. (laughs) I'm convinced that there are some things about women that are simply impenetrable to the male mind. And this limits the relationship, doesn't it? Can't a lack of understanding or empathy or sensitivity be a real source of frustration in any human relationship? Well, have you ever stopped to consider that this never happens with God? The Father never misunderstands the Son. The Son never misapprehends the Father. There is only ever perfect communication and understanding and sympathy flowing between the two. The Father and the Son are always in perfect harmony, always in perfect rhythm, always of one intention, always in unity of mind. And praise God that this is so. Can you even imagine what the cosmic consequences would be if there was misunderstanding or miscommunication in the Godhead? What if the Father did not know the Son and the Son did not exhaustively know the Father? What then? I'm not sure we could fathom the ramifications of this, but certainly the universe would fly apart and be plunged into chaos. And if the Son doesn't know the Father, then we have no salvation. Because if the Son doesn't know God and reveal Him truly, then what hope of relationship with the Father can we have? I am banking my life on the promise that Jesus knows his Father and has made known to us the Father's name. The mutual knowledge that God the Father and God the Son share is not merely a cold and sterile intellectual apprehension of one another. Rather, this is a knowledge that issues in love. Look again, if you would, at John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loves the Son. This too is a theme in the Gospel of John. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 5.20, 
which we have just heard, says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10, 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So the Father loves the Son's sacrificial death for his people. Yet this is not the only reason that the Father loves the Son, because John 17, 24 speaks of the love that the Father had for the Son before the foundation of the world. So this is a love that is intrinsic to the being of God. This is a relationship of love that existed before creation. An infinitely warm regard and affection that flows from the knowledge that they have of each other and the fellowship that they enjoyed in eternity past. As Moses was permitted to catch only a glimpse of the promised land, so here in John 17, 24, we are granted our farthest penetrating look into the eternal, intratarian love. Though we may be sure that this verse is only a faint whisper of that resounding, symphonic, divine love. And we note here, only in passing, that in the Gospel of John, the love that the Son has for his Father is chiefly displayed through his obedience. As Jesus states in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus loves the Father, so he does what the Father commands. The divine relationship between father and son is characterized by knowledge, by love, and by glory. Notice again in verse 24 the result of the father's love for the son. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father glorifies the Son because He loves Him, even as the Son glorifies the Father. In John 13, 31 through 32, Jesus declares, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. And at the beginning of this prayer in John 17, Jesus asks, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' death and resurrection will be the means by which he glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies him. But once again, we see that glory did not begin to radiate between the Father and the Son at the cross. But this is a glory that has been shining before the world existed. Again, glory is inherent 
in the Godhead. God has always been emanating with splendor and magnificence and brilliant grandeur. God is not dependent on creation to glorify him. God creates from the overflow of his own love and glory. Now, why should this matter to all of us? Of what concern is it to us that the relationship between father and son is characterized by perfect knowledge, the purest and most passionate love, and perpetual glory? Here's the answer, the mind-blowing answer. God invites us into that relationship. God beckons us to share in the divine knowledge and love and glory. Father and Son embrace us by the Spirit in their own relationship. Now, do you want a piece of that? Do you want a taste of the all-knowing, ever-loving, glory-giving, inter-Trinitarian relationship of the Holy God? It can be ours, unworthy and sinful worms that we are. Jesus died so that we could be folded into this divine relationship. Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest can tell us a lot about a person, at least on a superficial level. And I think the popularity of social media is testimony to a deep human desire to know and be known. We realize that to have a genuine relationship, there needs to be knowledge and understanding. You can't have any kind of friendship with someone who is a complete stranger to you. That is why the following words of Jesus from John 10 strike a chord that is deep within us. Jesus says, The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Don't you want that? Don't we all want that? To be known by someone who is strong and wise and cares for us, who knows us by name? To be known by Jesus and to know his voice leading us? I've always been touched by how the Apostle Paul expresses this reality in passing in the letter to the Galatians. He writes of them, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. We know God. Yes, hallelujah, we know God. But we are also known by Him. 
As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that is at Jesus' return, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We all yearn for this kind of personal knowledge, for this kind of relational intimacy and understanding. And friends, you are not going to find it in the world, no matter what kind of technology they devise. Back to John 10, and listen for the connection between the intra-Trinitarian knowledge and our participation in it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. When we are embraced by God, we are wrapped into a soul-penetrating and soul-satisfying knowledge. We are known. And the knowledge we have of the Father has been given to us through the Son. What Jesus claims in John 14 may be familiar to all of us. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then look at our passage in John 17 again, verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. We know the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Yet that is not all. If we are enfolded into a knowledge of the divine, then we are also enveloped by his love. And what Jesus says about this in the Gospel of John is staggering. Listen to John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That is Jesus speaking. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The manner and measure of the Holy Father's love for His Son Jesus is the manner and measure of Jesus' love toward us. Is there a sentence in the New Testament more astounding than that one? Or consider John 17. First glance at verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you, Father, loved them even as you loved me. So here, the Father's love for the Son is compared to the Father's love for us. So put together John 15.9 and John 17.23, and we learn that the infinite love 
that father and son have for each other is the same love that the father has for us and the same love that the son has for us. The fountain of divine love is cascading down upon us from both father and son. And then again in verse 26, Jesus prays, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, is there a greater fullness imaginable than to be filled with the divine love that the Father has for the Son from eternity past? I hope you see now what I meant in the beginning of the sermon when I said we are grasping at ineffable heights here and utterly sublime realities. Remember that in the Gospel of John, the love that the Son has for his Father is chiefly displayed through his obedience. And it is the same with us. Listen to how John 15.9 continues. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus has already stressed this in John chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. So are you abiding in a loving relationship with God? Have you been grafted into their divine life? If so, then you will bear fruit. You will display your love for God by doing what he commands in the power of his spirit. The relationship that God invites us into changes us from the inside out. Sometimes slowly, but surely. Finally, our relationship with God will be characterized by a participation in the divine glory. Look at John 17, 24 one more time. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. We who believe in Jesus are destined to bask in the glory of God forever. And notice the word about Jesus' desire in this verse. Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. If you know and love Jesus this morning, he wants you to be with him where he is. He desires it. And as weak and, and 
inconsistent as our desire can be at times to be in heaven with Jesus, you'll never find Jesus' desire and resolution to be wavering. As he says in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. This is the ultimate answer to the relationship famine of our day and our land. Relationship with Jesus, being with him where he is now, in glory. One of my favorite contemporary worship songs is I will glory in my redeemer. At one point the lyrics are I will glory in my redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. Then in the next verse comes some imagery that is very precious to me. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. What I so appreciate about this imagery, Jesus waiting for me at the gates, waiting to call me home, is that it captures the heart of John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus is waiting for us. He desires that we be with him. He is longing with expectation for that day when he will call us into paradise to be wrapped in the light of his glory. What to say in closing? Next week, we will consider how our relationship with the relational God transforms the relationships we have with each other within the church among those who know God. But before we consider that, I want to leave you with a question that I have poo-pooed at times in the past because I thought it was cheesy and overdone. But this is a question that genuinely cuts to the heart of the Christian faith. And that is, do you have a personal relationship with God the Father and Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about him? But do you know him? I'm not asking, do you work for him? But do you walk with him? If you are visiting with us this morning and you don't have a genuine relationship with God, we would be overjoyed to share with you how God has made that kind of relationship possible. 
despite your sin. And if you are in a right relationship with God this morning, let me only say that there is so much more for you to enjoy in that relationship. Infinitely more. So, let us press in, brothers and sisters. Let us press in. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we are humbled this morning that you would invite us into the very relationships that you enjoy within yourself. That we can be known and can know you as you know yourself. That we can love and be loved by you as you love yourself. And that we can share in your eternal glory. We're thankful this morning, God, and we ask, help us to press in further. For your name's sake, amen.